I want to read to you, um, we'll just read the first 10 verses of the first chapter to begin with. I'm only really going to be speaking on the, that first little paragraph, but here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, you a, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I want to get into this book for three reasons. It's been on my heart for a couple of months now, just thinking that I think this is the right thing for us to look at in this term. And here's the three reasons I want us to think about the book of Jonah. The first is that Jonah is probably the first missionary in the history of the world, first missionary representing the God of the Bible. So, you know, if you know anything of the story of the Bible, you know, it begins with God calling one man, Abraham, and then out of him comes all the people of God, the Hebrews. But until then, you know, in their journey to come and inhabit the land that we now know as Israel, um, their, their kind of relationship to the nations around them was tense at best. And their sort of call to be a blessing to the world, which is what Abraham called them to be, was always a source of, um, you know, a question mark, I suppose, over their existence. And they had what you might call a kind of centripetal, you know, where things are drawn to the center, um, appeal to some people. Individuals maybe felt, oh man, those people have got something a bit different. They know, they know God and, and, and their God seems to be real and alive. And so, you know, you'd get these people who come and join and become Jewish, essentially. And, you know, guys who'd get circumcised and whatever it took to become part of the people of God. But they weren't, the Jewish people weren't going out and sort of grabbing people and saying, come and join us, come and be part of what we're doing. Because they were very concerned with their own identity. So it was, it was centripetal. And up until now, you don't really see much of the opposite, the centrifugal thing, where people are going out and being spread out. When God, you know, always had that as intention. And that's the way the church operates. And you can think about this as a, a model for how churches today, you know, operate. Often we're very much enclosed in ourselves. And yeah, maybe people can look in and see something precious going on or something that they find attractive. Maybe not. But you kind of hope maybe they'll join us. And actually, when you look at the Bible, the whole direction of mission is turning around and looking outwards. And here's Jonah, the first guy who's called to be a missionary. And in that way, it resonates with every one of us and the call that God's put on us. If you call yourself a Christian, you are a missionary. Your call, the reason you're on this planet above everything else, is to share what you know about Jesus. I'm not saying other things are unimportant or of less value. Maybe they are, I don't know. But I'm just saying that that's, that's, it's on you. It's your call, right? 
So it's the first missionary book. Here's the second thing why I'm interested in this one. Nineveh. Nineveh. A massive city. Not an Israelite city. A foreign city. And the Bible's got a really interesting relationship with cities. So, you know, on the one hand, cities always seem to be places where there's just so much trouble. They seem to be centers of so much evil and darkness. You know, if I throw out a few of the city names that you hear in the Bible, you've got places like Babel, you've got places like Sodom and Gomorrah, Babylon, Rome, even Jerusalem itself. They become centers of so much darkness, don't they? And as a result, a lot of Christians over the, over the years have had a real negative attitude towards cities. Um, they've been seen as places where sin rules. And I was reading um, Matthew Henry, who was writing about a couple, few hundred years ago, actually in the 1600s, talking about cities. And he said, it's sad to think what a great deal of sin is committed in great cities, where there are many sinners who are not only all sinners, but they're making one another sin. And he's absolutely right, of course. Wherever you get like a huge concentration of people you get a huge concentration of, you know, exaggeration of all the tendencies and the lusts of the human heart, don't you? It's not like you run into the countryside to go and indulge your lust, do you? You run into cities. This is why young people love cities, right? And so the Bible has a sort of ambivalent attitude towards cities because they seem to exaggerate everything about humanity. So if there's bad stuff in humanity, it's put on display most of all in cities, but of course, also the opposite is true, that where there's good stuff in us and the call to, to uh, in, in a way, embody what it means to be like God, to be the image of God, we also see that on display. It's where often technology flourishes and creativity flourishes and the, the call of mankind to take dominion on the world. So there's this kind of tension, this pull in two directions. It's just mankind exploded and exaggerated and made more powerful in these great concentrations of people that we call cities. And that interests me because Nineveh was a city that caught God's attention. He calls it that great city. London is a city that has God's attention. How are we meant to hold ourselves, like our posture towards this great city that we live in? What should our attitude be towards it? This book really helps us to kind of dig around that question and understand what is God's heart towards a city like London. Here's my third reason why I'm interested in this book. It's because it... It's a gospel book. You're going to see as we progress through the story that Jonah is Jesus in a way. A very flawed version. But he's what you call a type of Christ. He lived uh, eight centuries before Jesus. But he is also a kind of miniature savior. A really bad version, but one nonetheless. (laughs) And Jesus actually says of himself later on, he describes himself in a kind of Jonah language. So you see this, this, this link between Jonah and Jesus and we, might, we learn some stuff about Jesus by looking at Jonah. But you also see this, the whole way that the gospel plays out here in this book. Because what is Jonah told to do? He's told to go and warn Nineveh. Call out against it, it says, for their evil has come up before me. And friends, that's exactly, that's exactly what the gospel's about. The gospel always begins with warning. When, I, when, I, uh, when the Apostle Paul went to... The Areopagus in Acts 17. And he's talking to all these Greek people. And they've never heard about Yahweh. They've never heard about Jesus. They don't know anything about the God of the Bible. So Paul has to start really, really far back. You know, he says God, God's the creator of the world. He's the, you know, you all have a, a sense that there's a God out there that you call the unknown God. Well, this is the God. I'm about to introduce him to you. 
And when he, he starts this first sermon to this, these people in this place called Mars Hill, he brings it to a conclusion where he says that God calls everyone everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. So he tells them the first thing he wants them to know is God has an intention to judge you through Jesus. Now, I think we live in a world where we've become a little bit scared of any of the language of judgment. In fact, people quote Jesus against Jesus on this one because Jesus said, do not judge, lest you be judged. And people like to go around thinking it's unchristian to even think about judgment. We believe in choice, don't we? Wasn't that the big thing that's come out this week with uh, Sally Phillips' documentary about the, um, the Down syndrome kids being screened and then aborted? And, you know, when you listen to the people who are, who are for it, they say choice is king. The right of a person to choose their own destiny, to be autonomous, is the most important human right on the planet. Of course, they're not thinking about the unborn baby. They're thinking about the mum only. And what she chooses is right. She's righteous in view of it being her autonomous choice. And then the Bible comes along and tells us, friends, don't you realize you're going to stand before Jesus one day? Don't you realize that he knows your intentions, your selfishness? That he's interested in your heart? This book speaks directly to us in our sinfulness. But praise God, all the way through are these tones and undercurrents of mercy. That the God who sends Jonah to go and preach about judgment is the same God who wants those people to come to him and experience his mercy. That's the gospel, friends. You can't go for the remedy until you realize your sickness. I love this book. I think it's going to speak powerfully to us. Here's what we're going to think about today. We're going to spend most of our time on the first thing. But we're going to think about Jonah's call, Jesus' call, and your call. Here we go. Jonah's call. Jonah is a bit of an enigma because he, he's probably the most successful missionary we've ever seen in the history of the world. Um, Martin Luther said of him, I'm tempted to say that no apostle or prophet, not even Christ himself, performed and accomplished with a single sermon the great things that, Jesus, that Jonah did. So here we are. This guy makes Billy Graham look like a total amateur. He goes and preaches to Nineveh, as you find in the rest of the book, in the, in the, later in the book, and Ninevites actually listen to him, this foreign guy, telling them about a God they don't know, which is a phenomenal thing in and of itself. It's a miracle, right? But despite him being the most successful preacher who's ever preached in the history of the world, he is also a total failure. His character is so embarrassingly selfish and, and petulant. I mean, there are points in here where you, just, you, you shake your head and think, Jonah, 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 didn't you know we were going to be reading about you for centuries? <laughs> like, this is really embarrassing, the stuff you're saying, the things that you're... You know, I, I love the fact that the, the books like this are in the Bible. It just, it just lends credibility that, you know, God's servants are so deeply flawed, and they tell you about how stupid they are, you know? And Jonah's one of these guys. Now, you know, it comes across, first of all, in this fact. That here he is, God summons him by name and says, Jonah, and he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. So he tells him, you're going to be my messenger, my mouthpiece, you're my prophet, 
to go and speak to these foreigners about me. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of Christians I've met, if you're a Christian, a lot of Christians I've met are very much interested in what their calling is, what they're here on earth to do. It's something we obsess about, something we pray about, something we search God for. We love the idea of our calling, right? Because we want to have, live lives that are significant before the living God. I don't think that's a wrong thing. I think that's a very, very good instinct. We're interested in these questions. And Jonah's told his calling and he doesn't want it. How, how strange, right? You know, this is such a contrast. We're used to guys like Isaiah. When Isaiah was called by God to be a prophet, he has this amazing vision. And God, says, God, God calls out and says, he says, uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So it's like he's calling out for a volunteer. Hands up, does anybody want to serve me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He's the eager guy in the class. He is desperate to be God's mouthpiece. And of course, it then turns out like, what a mistake, because Isaiah is like one of the most rejected prophets. But hey, God uses him. He's got eternal rewards in heaven. Jonah's the opposite. Jonah hears God call to him, and he hides. He's like, uh, are you talking, are you sure? Is he looking at someone else? Like, like, who are you? No, I'm not really sure this is for me. I find that really so interesting, how a guy can know the living God, hear God's voice, and not be interested in God's plan for his life. Isn't that what all of us do, though? Every one of you who has felt the, uh, the, the kind of impression of the Holy Spirit that you need to give your life to Jesus, and you've been running away from it, that's you, friend. Every one of you who's been running helter-skelter in a calling that you're not sure is, is pleasing to God, or disobeying Him because He's given you very clear directions on what you should do with your life, and you're walking in some, some, some diversion from it. You know, we can all be Jonah. And so what I'm interested in here is what are the reasons? Why, when God puts upon his shoulders this amazing privilege to be his mouthpiece, why does Jonah turn around and say, uh-uh, not so sure? Here's my five reasons, I think. First of all, Jonah is, he's afraid. Fear. You know, um, Nineveh is one of the greatest cities the world's ever seen. I think it's, some commentators think it's maybe the largest city in the world at the time. So it's a very intimidating place. And moreover, it's in a nation called Assyria. You think, you think that area part of the world is bad now? You should have seen it then. I'm going to tell you a bit more about that in a few minutes. But Jonah is afraid. He's afraid of the calling that God places upon him. Fear is the reason why he runs away. Abraham Maslow, who is a a psychologist in the United States, used Jonah as an example. He called it the Jonah Syndrome. and He says it's the fear of standing alone. And he described it like this. He says, to discover in oneself a great talent can certainly bring exhilaration, but it also brings a fear of the dangers, responsibilities, and duties of being a leader and of being alone. Responsibility can be seen as a heavy burden and evaded as long as possible. Jonah's call was the loneliest call. Because here he is, he's called to bring a message to an entire city, but to do it by himself. Occasionally you hear people with this kind of courage, you actually do this. 
You know, Jackie Pullinger, what a legend. Single woman, back in the, was it the 1970s, buys a one-way ticket to Hong Kong and then finds the worst part of Hong Kong, the part where the police are too scared to go, where the buildings are built so close together without sanitation and where everyone's hooked on heroin, goes and lives there, goes and tells them about Jesus, goes and sees addicts turn around. She wasn't afraid. She was deeply, deeply courageous. What an incredible woman. What an incredible woman. Jonah's the opposite. Fear is the reason he can't obey God. Are you afraid to obey God? Here's a second reason. He is a bigoted, prejudiced, hateful man. Why? Because he's being told to preach to dirty Assyrians. Oh man, he hates them. He hates them with good reason. The Assyrian Empire was one of the most brutal the world's ever known. For some time previously, Israel had been playing tributes to the king of Assyria just to stop them killing them all. Nineveh was known, had a reputation as one of the most brutal, dark cities. I don't know what the equivalent is today. I'm not sure anything even comes particularly close. I'll read you some of the stuff they got up to. About a century just before Jonah, remember these are the kinds of things that he remembers and knows. There was a king in Assyria called Asher Nazir Apli II. It's a catchy name. And... Uh, <laughs> He, he, he set out one day, he, they found an inscription that describes what he got up to. He went from Nineveh, which is where the royal residence was, he went from Nineveh, city of Nineveh, to another city called Suru, because the Suru people were getting a little bit rebellious and he needed to go and deal with them. So what does he do? He says, the nobles, nobles and elders of the city came out to meet me to save their lives. So they, they do, they come out of the city waving their white flags. And he says, I erected a pile in front of his gate. He means a pile of bodies. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me. In other words, he, he skinned them. And he says, I draped their skins over the pile. Some I, I spread out within the pile. He's trying to give you a bit more detail here so you can really imagine what's going on. It's quite artistic when you, when you, you understand what he's doing. He's, I, I, I spread them over I, I spread them out within, and some I erected on stakes upon the pile. He seems really proud of his, his work here. He says, I, I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. So he not only wants to butcher his enemies, he wants them to know that you never cross me. A Jewish writer called Chaim Lewis wrote that the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless, power-crazed foe. So that for Jonah, Nineveh was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden, tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. Now, here's something you need to understand about Jonah. Jonah is only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Two Kings. Because he lived at the same time as one of the Israelite kings called Jeroboam II. 
And the only thing it tells us about Jonah was that when Jeroboam was securing the land of Israel, so he was was expanding it and making sure that it was secure and safe, it was according to the prophetic word of Jonah that the boundaries were established for Israel. So in other words, Jonah's message was from God, make Israel great again. We're going to build a wall and we're going to make them pay. (laughs) This is Jonah. This is his message, right? I'm not kidding you. You can go and read 2 Kings. Here's a reference. 2 Kings 14.25. That's Jonah's message. Let's build a wall. Let's keep the enemy out. So here we are. A nationalist prophet with a message of protectionist nationalism called to go and preach in Mexico. Sorry, not Mexico. In, in Nineveh. Right? In Nineveh. So... It's easy to mock Americans. Isn't it? I'm so sorry. I love Americans. I love you guys. I love you guys. So I know some of you, you know, we're so glad to have you here. I know you're just running away. So why else are you here? So Jonah, Jonah, this is this guy. So, you know, I, it sounds a bit unkind, doesn't it? When I say he's prejudiced and bigoted, right? Because, you know, the, the Assyrians of all people, how can you love them? But I'm telling you, I think that it, when you start to read the rest of the book, you realize it comes from a deep set a deep-set hatred of the people that isn't worthy of any person of God, no matter how evil they are. And, you know, he's prejudiced because he is literally prejudging them. He doesn't know how they're going to respond to his message. In fact, as I said, they respond incredibly well. But he's already made up his mind. He's not going to tell them about God. He's not going to warn them. He'd rather God just takes them by surprise. So he's prejudiced, and he's hateful. Now, I think in a way... All of us as Christians need to wrestle with this constantly. As much as we like to think of ourselves as loving people, there are people, people groups and places that we would rather not go. And even when we're thinking about what we're called to do as, as believers, you know, so often our calling just lines up with what we really fancy doing with our time and not so much doing things that we don't want to do, like going and talking to people we don't like. I find it challenging Sometimes God wants to take us to places we wouldn't otherwise go, people we wouldn't otherwise want to be with, all for the sake of the gospel. He's afraid, he's prejudiced. Here's a third thing. Jonah is full of self-love, self-pity, and self-righteousness. He is selfish. He is, as as you read on, you understand he's got this kind of superiority thing going on. And a pride thing going on. He cares more about himself than he does about a city of countless people. Now where does that kind of pride and and selfishness come from? I think pride grows in the kind of field of entitlement. The field of of superiority. Jonah doesn't understand something central to the Jewish identity, which is that he was saved by grace. The only reason he knows God is because of God's grace to him. Not because he is worthy, not because he's better than the Assyrians, but because God is gracious. In Deuteronomy, when God's talking about the reason why he loves Israel, he says, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. He says, the Lord your God has chosen you. It's a wonderful thing to feel God has called you by name to be part of his people. And he says, I've chosen you for his treasured possession. 
Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, he's saying, I chose you. You alone. And then he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, you were pathetic. Not particularly interesting or lovable or admirable. So then you're left with the question, why did God love us? And the simple answer comes, because the Lord loves you. In other words, God doesn't explain his love. He loves us because he loves us. He loves us not because of anything in us that makes us worthy of his love or his grace or his kindness or his mercy. You can't look at your own life and say, hey, I know why I'm a Christian because I'm such a great person. And I just, you know, I'm a little bit smarter than them, so I looked into it, or I'm a little bit more humble than them, so I I repented of my sin or whatever. No, God says when he set his heart upon you to choose you, to call you to be his own people, it's not because of any worthiness in you. You were unworthy. It was simply because of his grace and his love. A person for whom this has become the most defining reality of their life is a person whom pride begins to diminish and be destroyed and dismantled. You can't feel better than other people when you know that the only reason that you are loved by God and called by God to be his is because of his grace. And Jonah clearly doesn't get that. He doesn't understand the grace of God. He thinks he's better than them. He thinks he's more worthy than them. He's afraid. He's prejudiced. He's selfish and superior. Here's the fourth thing about Jonah. He is ignorant. His theology is really bad because if you notice what he decides to do, he says um, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, of course, you know, as an Israelite, I get this. You know, where does God dwell? God dwells in his temple. So where do, how do I get away from God? I get away from the temple as far as I can get. But at the same time, Jonah knows because, that God is the God of the whole earth. I mean, God's just told him that he's, been, he's got a message for Nineveh, which means that God's not only the God of Jerusalem, he's also the God of Assyria and of the Ninevites. He's a God over everything. He's sovereign. So why on earth does Jonah think he can run away? He's really, really quite silly. <laughs> Psalm 139 What a precious psalm this one is. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. But if I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. I'm going to hide, he says. He says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God sees all. He knows all. He is everywhere in everything. He is inescapable. Now, friends, we're not that different from Jonah. We do the same thing, try and run away from God. Whenever we indulge our secret sins, or whenever we think that our lives aren't going to be held accountable to the Savior, 
when you allow time to pass and tick away and you're not doing anything about the state you're in. You're living, you may believe that God's everywhere and everything and that he's watching you, but you're living as though that isn't true. Your life is preaching a different message. You're no different from Jonah, running away from the presence of God. Now, far better we surrender now to the all-sovereign God than that we keep running and experience whatever he has later. Here's the last thing about Jonah, the last reason why I think he runs away. I think it's just rebellion. I think he's just a sinful rebel. We should all identify with this because I think it's in all of us. He just runs. You want me to go there? Well, I'm going there. It's weird, isn't it, how easy it is for him to run away. God doesn't stop him. God doesn't make it difficult for him. He doesn't put a block in his way. This is one of the things you see about God. Whenever people are set on a course of disobedience and rebellion against God, they want whatever God says, they're going to do something different. Even if they know in their conscience that what they're doing is wrong. You ever been there where you've known in your conscience that what you're doing is wrong, but you still decide to do it anyway? Whenever we do that, God gives us rope. It's a little bit like one of those extendable dog leads, right? <laughs> Just stretching out and out and out. He gives us rope. He allows us to run freely for a time and experience what it's like to live life running away from God and outside of his will. Until eventually we run out of rope. And it seems to me that that's exactly what's happening for Jonah here. He is experiencing a great deal of ease in running away from God. Here's how Matthew Henry put it. He says, providence, in other words, God's sovereign hand, seemed to favor his design. So it's as though God was happy with Jonah's plan because it became so easy for Jonah to run away. And he says it gave him an opportunity to escape. And Matthew Henry says this, we may be out of the way of duty. In other words, we may be doing the wrong thing and yet may meet with a favorable gale, a favorable wind. We might have the wind of God, God, it seems, taking us away in the opposite direction to what we're supposed to be doing. He says the ready way is not always the right way. Now, the reason why I'm pointing this out to you, friends, is because so often Christians have this sort of like weird inner antenna thing where they're like, what do I feel peace about? It's like, if I feel peace about something, I'm going to do that thing even if that thing is completely, obviously wrong, before God. I'm not saying that you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, living in you, breathing in you, guiding you, speaking to you, but it's depressing when Christians come to you and say, I really feel like God's calling me to do this, that, or the other thing, when you know that that thing is actually forbidden in the Bible. It's like, guys, please, please. (laughs) And here you are. He's saying just because you feel a peace or an ease or a smoothness to your journey, doesn't mean that God's appointed that path for you. So it may be with you that you're using up the slack on the rope. It's not going to last forever. Jonah was, has so much ease in running away from God that even when the storm hits his boat, as you saw, he's asleep in the bottom of it. He's like, man, I have got it made. I'm running away and God doesn't even know where I am. He's so at peace. (laughs) And of course, God has another plan. And here we are. There's like this ominous sign going on in these first verses. This is how the book of Jonah is written, by the way. It, It keeps saying how he went down. He went down to Joppa. 
And then he, he paid the fare and went down into the boat away from the presence of the Lord. And as you keep reading through chapter 1, he keeps going down, 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 down. It's not an accident. The writer is very clever the way he does this. He does it with other words as well in the book. He's going down, he's going down, he's going down. He's sinking, sinking, sinking until eventually chapter 2 he ends up down at the bottom of the sea, entangled in seaweed, drowning, and I think even dead. It's like this ominous thing going on. Yeah, he's experiencing a slack on the rope, so he's like running as hard as he can. Kids do this, don't they? They see an open door and they run for it. Jonah's doing that, but he doesn't realize he's going down, 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 away from God's favor, away from God's plan, away from God's purpose. Are you doing the same thing? Are you running away? That's Jonah. One of the things that you're going to see throughout this book is how much of a contrast there is between Jonah and Jesus. Jesus is also a missionary. Jesus is sent by the Father to come into this world to rescue sinners like you and me. But when Jesus is sent on a mission, hear the kind of words that he uses. I have come to do your will, O God, as it says of me in the scroll of the book. It's there in Hebrews 10. Here's another one, Isaiah 50. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. It's the picture of somebody who waits on God every day. Lord, I want to learn from you. I want to surrender my life to you. I submit to your will entirely. Open my ears that I can hear you and you teach me day after day. And then he says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint. And then we have a picture of Jesus, the missionary. He waited on God. He knew his sense of calling. He knew his sense of purpose in this world, why he'd come into the world and what he was here to do. And all through the Gospels, you have this this note going on that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he says even one occasion that he set his face like a flint to go, go to Jerusalem. He made a decision. It wasn't an easy decision. I doubt he felt a lot of peace about it. But he made the right decision. He is the picture of the perfect Obedience that God wants. In many ways, he's the opposite of Jonah. And just as Jonah went down, 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 down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the depths of the sea, Jesus also takes a very similar journey. It says in Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He goes down. And then being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He went down as well. He went down, down, down. The only difference is in the two stories that we are the Ninevites. 
I'm so thankful that we had a missionary who was willing to come for us. That our Savior Jesus was not on the run from his Father. And he didn't flake out, get afraid. He didn't hate us, though you are hateful in our sin. He came for us. We're going to see this all through the book, these contrasting characters. I love Jonah for this, that he makes Jesus look great. Let me talk to you about your call, last of all. Every day, friends, you're answering the question, am I willing to go? Please don't make a mistake here. I don't think you're any less called than Jonah is. Everyone who calls, who calls himself a Christian has upon their lives the commission of Jesus Christ to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Please don't come to me and say, I'm not sure what my calling is. There it is. It's in black and white. But we, by our lives and lifestyles, often are on the run from what we're called to do for Jesus. We can do it by our long-term trajectory. Is all of your life geared towards the mission of Jesus Christ? Are you thinking imaginatively of more and better ways that you can serve him? Or are you running to Joppa? that speaks of self-service, speaks of comfort and safety and self-protection. It's true on a daily basis even, that your daily decisions, are you praying for taking opportunity to, to serve Christ where you are? I think all the way through this book, we're going to feel that, that provocation, that gracious provocation of God to be on mission with Jesus, to serve him, to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ in this gospel not because God wants us to go and suffer in Nineveh and experience hard and difficult lives, but because this is the greatest privilege imaginable. Are you heading to Tarshish? Maybe you've been backsliding. Maybe you know that your life has just not been, you've not been walking with God for some time now. For whatever reason, maybe it's this sin or that distraction. Today is the day you deal with that. Make a decision before the living God. Repent of your sin. Commit yourself to him wholly. Interesting thing about Tarshish. Have I said that right? (laughs) No one knows where it was. Some people think it might have been as far as the southern tip of India. It may have been Tarsus in Asia Minor where the Apostle Paul came from. It may have been Tartessos, I think it is, over in Spain. Wherever it was... It was in the wrong direction. It was far away. And you had to get there by sea. Here's what a rabbi said about Tarshish. He says, what is Tarshish? In a story, it is anywhere. Anywhere but the right place. It's the opposite direction, the direction a person takes when he turns his back on his destiny. It is the excuse we give our rationalizations. Friends, we are all, all able to make that kind of mistake. And many of us have, even on a daily basis. Do you identify with any of the same instincts that held Jonah back? His fear, his prejudice, his lack of love, his pride, his superiority, his, his rebellion. Do you identify with any of that? We need a fresh sense of love for others. We need a fresh awareness of the grace of God. The grace of God that calls us to lay our lives down 
for the Saviour who loved us. In Romans 6, Paul's talking about two competing, warring instincts in your soul. He's talking about the tendency either to be a slave of sin, which leads to death, or a slave of righteousness, which leads to life. And he says this in Romans 6.22. He says, but now that you've been set free from sin, that's you. If you know Jesus, you've been set free from sin. He says, you've become slaves of God. And the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. In other words, only good can come from obedience to the living God. This letter is a summons to obedience to God. Maybe it's in very small ways in your life where you're just really aware that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on this thing or that thing in your life and you just need to let it go. Maybe it's the great trajectory of where you're going. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all today and you know you've been on the run from God. You felt something of his beckoning call to you. But time and again, you found yourself resisting, unsure, uncertain, looking for excuses not to come and give your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to change that today. I'd love us to stand together and pray together. This book is a call to fresh decision, fresh consecration, fresh determination to hear the heart of God, to respond willingly to the promptings and leadings of his spirit and as well as the the very clear directions from the scriptures and to lay your life down, to jettison self-interest, to jettison self-protection and selfishness, the autonomy of choice, and instead to experience the liberty of calling yourself a slave of Christ. It's one of the great paradoxes of what Christianity means, that you only really know what freedom is when you self-consciously lay down your life in slavery to Jesus. It sounds like a contradiction. It isn't. He made you. He designed you. To obey him is to experience the liberty of life as it was intended to be experienced. Have you been resisting his will? Have you been delaying? Have you been set on a course of sin? Christ is gently calling us back. He's given us the example of Jonah to show us that it's actually quite silly. He's also given us the example of his own life to show us the amazing fruit that comes from obedience to the Father. 
The rest of that passage in Philippians 2, as it describes his descent to become a man and then his descent to go to the grave, later describes his ascent. As it says that God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Christ in his willing submission to the Father is glorified by the Father. Jonah, in his rebellious running away from God, is cast into the sea. So surrender your life now. Can we have two minutes of just quietness where we can respond to God in a way that we think is appropriate? If you are not a Christian, I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer and to say to Jesus, I don't want to live an autonomous life anymore. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I pray you will save me. I want to live for you. It's turning around.